There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a quick heads up. This podcast contains rude language and adult themes. The philosophy of sex. It's, it's a growing industry. I think in 2017, it was about $23 billion, just the sex tech market alone. And in 2019, Allied Market Research Group produced the studies uh, evaluating the entire sex tech industry at $74.7 billion, which means it tripled in size in less than three years. Still an awful lot of exploitation and when you look into the history of sex toy bit of it it was kind of this side bit that they thought oh yeah look we can make a bit of money out of that but we're really just interested in the porn three days later i get an email that says we're very sorry but this is for a larger conversation that's going up the chain of administrators <laughs> They've decided to retract your award on the basis that they believe it is obscene. What I realised was the same sociosexual taboos that exist around pornography and sex toys as recreational devices and, and services also exist within the medical field. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. For an industry that has nearly tripled in size in the last three years, the future for sex toys is seemingly bright, with an influx of brands emerging and toy use becoming less stigmatised and more commonplace, the world of sex toys is rapidly changing. In this episode, we're going to explore how despite the growth and demand of sex toys, discrimination still exists against sex toy companies. There are many antiquated attitudes that pose barriers to setting up and running a business in this industry. We'll meet Laura DiCarlo, who shares how one mind-blowing orgasm led her to found her namesake company and the challenges she's faced along the way. Changing the perception about sex toys, industrial designer and professor Judith Glover talks about the history of the industry and her experience creating toys for people with disabilities. I uh, came to Melbourne to study industrial design. Before that, I was actually a metal worker. I was a metalsmith, blacksmith. And, you know, I had a new partner and never used the sex toy before. And then on our first date, you know, we fell into bed and she whips out um, this horrendous dildo. And I was just like, what is that? So I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. Let's have a look at this industry. And, I mean, that was the late 90s. That's Dr. Judith Glover, Senior Lecturer at RMIT's School of Design. Judith specialises in social and sustainable design, with a particular expertise in gender and sexuality. Her PhD focused on the role that industrial design could play in the future of socio-sexual behaviour and technology through the creation of safer, higher-quality sex toys for contemporary female consumers. 
She's one of the only women in the world with a PhD in sex toy design. She explains what the industry looked like as she completed her studies. It was a really bad industry. Like, it wasn't just that the, the packaging itself was really sexist and very stereotypical. You know, women were portrayed as sluts and porn stars and naughty nurses and all of this sort of stuff. And as women, we get, you know, we get marketed to in very, very sophisticated ways. And so you're looking at this industry going, you're trying to sell me something, but you're telling me I'm a slut. So that's really weird. Whereas if you go over to perfume, it's all power and glamour and wealth. And, I mean, it's all bullshit because it's marketing. But, I mean, it's kind of being very sort of positive affirmation to women. You know, if you buy this perfume, you're going to get this really handsome dude. He's going to have lots of money. Over in the porn industry, it's like, if you buy this, you're a slut. So none of it made sense and none of it really matched what contemporary women were. And Sex and the City was around at the time and it was like at that stage 30 years after second wave feminism had started and I was like, what the hell's going on here? You know, me and my girl, girlfriends were all really open about talking about sex, certainly not the Victorian era anymore. What the hell is going on with this industry? To put it into context, August 1998 was when the infamous vibrator episode of Sex in the City aired, where Miranda lends Charlotte her rabbit vibrator, and Charlotte becomes unwilling to leave the house. That night, Miranda and I had plans to join Charlotte for a gallery opening in Chelsea when... Hello? Carrie, it's Charlotte. Oh, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to cancel. Yeah, I'm totally wiped out. Uh-huh. Wiped out. That was Charlotte speak for, I'm spending the night with my vibrator. It was the big reveal of sex toys into pop culture, and they went absolutely viral. It was the beginning of online shopping, making buying sex toys easier and more discreet. The market was also flooded by cheap copycat products, copying the iconic dual stimulation design. And there was a mad scramble to capitalise from the new opportunity and popularity of sex toys. Dudes, it's like it's the turn of the millennium and this area needs to be reformed and we're industrial designers, so this is crazy. Like, we are the people um, that should be designing this. And that was a big part of my thesis, which was, it was really about how industrial design methods and processes and the culture of the, of the industrial design community, the way that we're trained, that behaviours and beliefs, our professional processes could transform this industry. So the thesis looked at what that was and then also looked at well, what, was, what was the prevailing culture of the pornography, the history and prevailing culture of the pornography industry. So, and even up at that point, which was the turn of the millennium, um, it's still a very male-dominated industry. There's still an awful lot of exploitation. And when you look into the history of the sex toy bit of it, it was kind of this side bit that they thought, oh, yeah, look, we can make a bit of money out of that, but we're really just interested in the porn. Because, you know, up until the internet came, they were just making ridiculous amounts of money out of pornography. Judith's PhD, which she completed in 2013, was the first to place industrial design within the field of sexual health and advocate for the safe and reliable production of sex toys, facilitating healthy sexual practice for women and men. Sexual health and well-being is something we know much more about now than in the 90s. These days, Laura DiCarlo is someone who has been keeping that conversation going through her namesake brand of toys. 
And I started my journey in a very waveringly intrepid, frightful manner and full of, full of shame and stigma along the way. And I met a lot of other people that felt the same way and ultimately decided, I don't want anybody to feel these same things these, this way. There's this preconceived notion around what sex is supposed to be and what your journey is supposed to look like. And we want to blast that box wide open and allow people to understand that your journey is exactly just what it is. Nobody else can dictate that for you. And being able to have control over your own journey is powerful. And we want everybody to, to feel comfortable in that because those kind of really amazing individuals are the kinds of people that help shape society in the way that it needs to go forward, not in the way that one singular demographic of people has you know, continue to shape it for millennia. Yeah, we're done with that. Laura's probably the best example of someone taking control of their own sexual journey. I had this crazy orgasm when I was about 28 or 29 years old. And if I had had socks on, it would have knocked my socks off. <laughs> but instead, I didn't have socks on and it literally knocked me off the bed. And I laid there for like 10 minutes staring at the floor like practically drooling and and all I like the one thing that kept running through my mind was holy crap how do I do that again like the long story short is that orgasm was powerful enough to get me to change my career track and actually start a company The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalised recommendations. Kinda like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best. So whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalized selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone. So visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. The design-led revolution that sort of started around the 90s through consumer electronics becoming so so important and popular in our lives, we've become really, really design and tech savvy and literate. And particularly women. Women expect really good stuff. I mean, we kind of like have ecosystems of products and clothes and accessories and that match our lifestyles and who we think we are and our identities and whatever. And we're pretty savvy consumers. We're pretty sophisticated consumers. We're very design literate these days. And we expect we expect quality. Yeah, and so you go to a sex, sex store and you're just like, what? And around that time is when I really started to realize I wanted to help people recreate that experience. Yeah. But I wanted them to be able to do it on their own. But that wasn't, there weren't really any products out there that, that helped you to do that. Lo and behold, sex toys turn out to be these really, really interesting sociosexual markers. And they turned out to be reflections of the kind of the sexual politics and the sexual mores of each period. Effectively, from that period of Victorianism through to today, 
Best Stories really kind of can describe the emancipation of Western women across that 20th century period and, and the way that it changes and ebbs and flows. So then I ended up in I ended up in academia um, and translated that into the sexual health and innovation area um, that I work in today. Judith, after finishing her PhD, started a teaching and research branch at RMIT University, developing projects in the field of sexual health, well-being and design. Dashi uh, Design and Sexual Health Innovation is a little subfield of industrial design that I kind of had to sort of create because it didn't really exist. And, I mean, industrial design has very much um, worked closely with health and medical industry to develop lots and lots of products. But what I realised was the same socio-sexual taboos that exist around pornography and sex toys as recreational devices and, and services also exist within the medical field. Despite how far we think we might have come, Judith's right about the taboos that still exist around sex toys. There are so many barriers to overcome for anyone wanting to create a business in the industry. So right after I founded the company, um, I went and partnered with Oregon State University, who happened to be the top four robotics graduate program in the country at the time. You know, I went to them and said, hey, uh, so I have this crazy orgasm and I want to recreate the experience (laughs) with a product. And I believe that robotics are required. Can you do this? And I handed him a sheet of 52 functional engineering requirements and said, this is how I want to do it. And he got really excited. He's like, this is engineering. This is cool. (laughs) Let's do this. And so we kicked off this industry-funded research program. We have this prototype. Let's apply for awards and start putting together a strategy for launch, right? So we applied for the Consumer Electronics Show Innovation Honoree Award Mm. in robotics and just thinking, well, it'll be good practice for us to apply. All the while thinking, we're a femme-led team of six femme-facing engineers (laughs) making sex tech. They're going (laughs) to laugh at us, but we're going to try. Since our interview, I've thought more about what Laura said here. It's really interesting that she thought about entering this way that it wouldn't be taken seriously. Why? Because it's sex tech? Anyway, here's what happened next. So we applied, and a month later, they were like, this is really innovative. Here's your award. And we're like, are you serious? (laughs) About a month later, we're trying to, you know, figure out the details of the show, and they go, wait, uh, you're an adult toy. And we're like, yeah. And they said, well, you can't be here. You can't be on the show floor. And we're like, but y'all gave us an award, so we got to figure out how we can make this happen. So what do we do? And they went silent mm-hmm. for like three days. And I'm over here chewing on my nails, like something straight out of Looney Tunes. And three days later, I get an email that says, we are very sorry, but this has spurred a larger conversation that's going up the team of administrators <laughs> and they decided to retract your award on the basis that they believe it is obscene. You know, we, we implored them. We said, this is really not a great time for y'all to be overly patriarchal. You gave us an award. Yeah. It's completely legitimate. Your administrators yeah. took it away, not your judges. You're still saying, yes, it's innovative, but it doesn't meet your requirements for decency. Yeah. It's sexual health. Give me a break. 
And we pointed out, you know, the years of gender bias at their show, the booth babes, the, the fact mm. that there hadn't been a single female keynote speaker in the whole yeah. line. And then they retorted and said, well, we don't actually think it's innovative. Now go away. Right. And they kept coming back and saying, no, no, now you're banned from the show. And we're like, oh, this just keeps getting better and better. Yeah. So we put together a plan and we launched an international awareness campaign mm. on the day that the uh, Consumer Electronics Show went live. We obliterated their news. We didn't read a single headline that said CES unless Laura DiCarlo was in there with it. So about six months into this, we're getting a ton of traction and we get a call from the Consumer Electronics Show, the CTA, and they yeah. want to talk to us. And we talked and, and they realized that they had an issue with their show. We said, you know, you don't just have an issue with sex tech, you have a, you have a woman issue, yeah, yeah. you have a, a minority issue, you have a people of color issue mm. at your show. You do realize yeah. that. And essentially they said, yes, and that's something that we're trying to change and, you know, we want to make this right. We said, well, we don't just want our award back. One, it's a little late. Two, mm. like, we have bigger fish to fry. We want to be at your show. We want the entire sexual tech industry to be allowed mm. to be at your show. Not because we just want to be there, but because sex tech and that. sexual health and wellness should be a part of health and wellness because it is. Mm. Stories like this are not uncommon for people working in the sexual health and well-being space. My own experience of founding my sex toy company, Becoming, was pretty fucking challenging at points. Our Instagram account was restricted within a matter of days. The brand was deemed offensive for depicting nudity and sex in cartoon-like illustrations. After struggling to find payment providers and partner banks, we had to redo the website, redacting any instances of cartoon nudity. Printers initially refused to make our packaging due to concerns over printing and publishing laws in China. We've been backed into corners and made concessions at every turn. We can't advertise through the channels available to the vast majority of businesses. We can't even advertise or promote this podcast because of the illustrations we've created. We've been penalised for making design decisions that simply reflect the business we trade in, sex. The number of businesses complicit in upholding these arbitrary and discriminatory policies is pretty dumbfounding. I was told countless times by sales reps and account managers that they were regrettably unable to assist us. As Laura's experience demonstrates, we are certainly far from alone in this experience. In 2019, sex tech company Dame filed a lawsuit against New York City's Metropolitan Transit Authority for refusing to run ads featuring female sex toys, claiming MTA guidelines unfairly discriminated against the company, while other brands had been free to use cleavage, phallic shapes and sexual innuendos in their advertisements. Womanizer recently launched their Unmute Pleasure campaign after Instagram shut down their account without warning in early August. The recent ban is evidence of an ongoing issue that the brand and its sister companies, WeVibe and ArcWave, have faced over the years. Here are some of the other issues. Even large, powerful companies within the sex space, who may even just be offering sex-adjacent material and products, struggle. Seeing what's happening with the likes of OnlyFans, it's hard not to feel disheartened. 
There are immensely powerful machines that all companies rely on to succeed, like banks and social media platforms. When an individual or business's accounts are cancelled and services blocked without explanation, this can force them into vulnerable or unsafe financial situations, which have huge run-on implications. What's interesting is that this doesn't seem to be getting better either. It's seemingly getting worse. Incidents of restrictions and banning have ramped up dramatically since March 21 in 2018, when Foster-Sester legislation passed in the Senate in the United States. Foster-Sester holds third-party websites such as Craigslist and Backpage accountable for anyone who might be soliciting sex through their platforms. Although the legislation ostensibly combats involuntary human trafficking, activists have widely condemned it for endangering the lives of sex workers by making it difficult for them to organise and protect one another. A ripple effect has been to usher in a more repressive era of the internet, one in which websites such as Tumblr have banned adult content, Patreon is kicking off adult performers, and financial institutions are clamping down on businesses even remotely connected to sex. While the sex toy industry remains completely unregulated when it comes to matters of health and safety, it's hyper-regulated when it comes to advertising, marketing, and anything that involves public discourse of the topic. So why? Sex toy businesses often struggle to find banks that will work with them and investors who want to back them. Many venture capital firms have morality clauses that prevent them from dealing with anything considered adult content. It would be easy to pin this down to conservatism and patriarchy, but is this what's really at play? In any other industry, it's hard to imagine investors being able to argue against products and services with proven markets in demand. The same goes for advertising machines like Facebook and Instagram. We know considerable pressure can come from governments and politicians, like in 2014 when the United States Justice Department instigated Operation Chokepoint, which was intended to prevent fraud and money laundering. However, like many laws, including Foster-Sester, it became subject to abuses of power. The Justice Department was asking banks to identify customers who may be breaking the law or simply doing something government officials didn't like. Banks were asked to choke off those customers' access to financial services, shutting down their accounts. And you guessed it, adult entertainment and services did not come off lightly. We have to think about how straightforward moral stigma informs these policies, but it's unlikely that taboos are the only explanation for the financial discrimination aimed at adult businesses and workers. The personal politics of people in the boardroom has to be a factor to some degree, even if it's not a conscious thing. The perceived stigma of sex and porn not only influences corporate policy at the top, but potentially can be infectious across an industry. Once some companies start excluding adult businesses, others may want to move toward a conservative policy just to not be sticking out. A widespread taboo can perpetuate the perception of risk, which can, in turn, perpetuate the social stigma. I think it's probably true that the discrimination itself, in fact, makes adult businesses and sex workers a more risky investment. 
It shouldn't be surprising that the policies of long-established financial institutions are influenced by vestigial attitudes towards the adult industry and sexual taboos. But when it comes to new financial technology companies, blanket bans on adult businesses seem incongruous with the libertarian ideology that undergirds so much of startup culture. It's telling that West Coast companies like Amazon, PayPal and Square in some cases prohibit adult businesses and sex workers from using their services. Silicon Valley has historically paid lip service when it's convenient to embrace certain cyber-libertarian ideology. But at the end of the day, those are principles of convenience. They're a veneer that companies will wear when it's convenient to make an argument in court or when it's financially beneficial to them. But they will readily abandon them as well to make money. Even when financial startups want to break the mold and work with adult content providers, they are at the beholden of banks and traditional financial partners that underwrite their web-based services. The new world order of money still subscribes to the old world order of money. While there are companies and investors that want to work with and do work with businesses like Becoming and Laura DiCarlo, the incentives for them to go against the grain are limited. While stigma accounts for a lot of what's happening, there's a complex interplay of money, power and politics dictating how this industry operates. It takes a strong will and belief in the use of sex toys to work in the industry. The ones that are, like Laura and Judith, are constantly innovating and looking for ways to use data and technology in their design process. Our first study, we asked over 1,500 people, what are emotions you like? What kind? Mm. How do you like to be touched? Mm. Where do you like to be touched? Yeah. Not only that, but like, what does communication look like with your partner? How mm. comfortable are you with your own body? Does it work? Is it bulky? Is it mm. weird? Is it too big? Is it too small? And then we get to the right shape and the right size, and then we'd say, okay, so this is the motion we want with it. Yeah. And then we'd start iterating there. You might be surprised to know just how many iterations happen on a Laura DiCarlo vibrator. 236 parts, a couple thousand iterations. Laura's designs are indeed very complex and use micro-robotics and biomimetics to make products that do a whole lot more than just vibrate. It feels more like a human partner instead of just vibrating in order to create or recreate that kind of experience you get with a human partner. We actually have an engineering team in-house and we have engineering and, and rapid prototyping capabilities in-house. Mm. So we have um, several different kinds of 3D printers and a team of about six engineers now. This model means they're able to revise and do user testing much faster too. This user testing helps Laura to gain valuable insight into how we want to get off. And this customer-driven design approach is where Laura finds inspiration to create her products. It's entirely consumer-driven. Um, yeah. Those types of touch come from our consumers. Mm. And, um, and we don't just get it from studies. Uh, mm. I have people that reach out to me all the time on social media and say, hey, you know, my friends and I would all love this. And, you know, I would go to our marketing team and say, let's test this mm. because this is not the first person that is asking about this. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a great idea. Let's go test it and see what everybody else thinks. And if this is a problem, then let's find a solution. Laura continues to break new ground in engineering with her products. Next time you pick up your vibrator, 
you might want to pause for a moment and appreciate the care and brain power that went into designing it. My value is to find my next research client and, and create the next new kind of set of objects that don't exist that could create social and economic value. I mean, I was horrified the first time I went to a sexuality and disability conference and I had a young lady come up to me and said, in a wheelchair, who had cerebral palsy, just say, can you help me? I can't masturbate. I can't masturbate on my own. And I was just like, oh, my God. And, and that's how the Handy Project started. Like Heather and Andrew, who are the brother and sister, Andrew's got cerebral palsy. He got to the point one day where he could not wank himself anymore and his life has changed irretrievably. And he was just like, what am I going to do? He just couldn't get his hand down there. That journey could potentially lead to being able to help a, a lot of people. So his sister's a real dynamo and she's just like, right, let's start a company. Judith is talking about Handy, sex toys by and for people with disabilities. She's collaborating with Handy on their product design. There's hundreds of millions of people across the world who are disabled. And if you think that that product might be able to help millions of people, that one product, I mean, that's pretty amazing. And what it's effectively doing is it's enabling people to please themselves effectively. And, and again, it depends on the range of your, your ability, but it certainly will help a core group of people that it suits be able to take control of their, some of their own pleasure and please themselves when they want, how they want. And then if it's successful, then we've got a whole bunch of other products sitting there from our first rounds of research and, and concept development that we can then start putting other products out there on the market too. So if Handy is successful, then there might be a cluster of products eventually over the next five years. And then that cluster, again, will help millions and millions and millions of people. When we embrace the fact that sexual pleasure is a human right, Incredible brands like Handy can grow and flourish to bring pleasure to all people. The design thinking and processes that create these products are groundbreaking. The way that you normally design for people with disabilities is called an assistive technology approach. And effectively, you're designing a personalised, customised system, artefact and system for them. It's flexible and it's going to be able to be moved into different positions, different angles. The toys that go with it can, can be put into different places and positions. It's about trying to make the product itself flexible enough that once people kind of get it, get it set to where they want it, where it works for them, um, it can work. Judith is really on the path to bring well-designed and equitable toys into the lives of everybody no matter their physical ability. Judith and Laura both follow a human-centred design ethos that's going to continue to push boundaries, bring pleasure into people's lives, and expand the possibility for self-exploration. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, not even just customers, but literally like friends and family members who are like, Oh, well, I think, you know, I'm having this experience and yeah. I must be X. Yeah. And that means I am this sexual creature for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> You're not, like, yeah. you, guess what? You can be a different sexual creature in six months. Yeah. Or tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Or you can change every day. The particular vibrator that I use, it's not been developed 
I mean, I'm one of the subset of women that as they grow older and they start to reach menopause, they lose sensitivity in their clitoris, right? So because I've tried a lot of vibrators over my life, I've found a particular one that really works for me. It's a fun factory product and it's called Big Boss. It's hilarious because I'm a lesbian, but it's actually a big dick. It's a big black dick. But it's not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not using because it it's a big black dick. It's because it's, it's got a really uh, quite thick shaft of silicon and it's got a big motor in it. So you get, a, you get a quite a strong but soft rumbly sensation, which means that, you know, for women who are losing their sensitivity, you can kind of ramp, ramp it up quite high, but it doesn't sting. Now, that has not been designed specifically for menopausal women, not at all. You know, it's just that I've come across this because I'm like, well, damned if I'm going to, like, lose the ability to have an orgasm. I could probably come up with a range of different solutions because, I mean, I know women that have not even have not been affected in the same way. So um, even as a subset, we're all going to be quite different. And then there'd be younger women that might have gone through sexual trauma that, that might need something like that. But um, there's enough sex toys out there that if you're pretty sexually healthy... You'll find something, as long as you find a good brand, you'll find something that you like. And this is where we come up against the paradox of choice. The sex toy industry is also a pretty rogue one. There's more than a few cowboys out there, and not the sexy kind. We know there's more to shopping than just price and quality. You probably also want to support brands that have a similar code of ethics to yours. But often finding the story behind sex toys is extremely difficult. If you're asking who's making your toys and what exactly is in my dildo, you'll often be left wondering. The sex toy industry is largely unregulated. In the United States, the Consumer Product Safety Commission puts sex toys in the same category as massage devices. So the materials in them aren't subject to any real standard for toxicity even though they're sitting against the most absorbent parts of your body. Australia has similarly weak product laws. Some companies slap for novelty use labels on their toys to avoid lawsuits and call it a day. But lawsuits or not, people can still get hurt. Plus, many of the countries where toys are produced on the cheap don't regulate their factories, so it's up to each company to ensure they're using safe materials, emitting minimal carbon, and paying and treating their workers fairly. In trying to boost their profit margins, these companies typically fall short on at least one of these practices. Many toys are manufactured in the same offshore factories, so genuine differences can be very limited if you don't know where to look. Oh, I wish I'd taken a whole, I wish I'd documented it with photographs and stuff. Like, you just wouldn't believe it. The branding and the the poor quality products and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, horrendous. So what can we look for? How do we choose? Is it safe? Is it being made safely? Is it, like, not noisy? Is it up to the kind of the normal, current consumer electronics standards? You know, the amount of times I've had some sex toy company say, you know, women don't want rechargeables. And she's like, are you kidding me? You know, are you kidding me? We want to be able to plug it into our laptops. You just can't be bothered changing your manufacturing systems, your production line, because you're too lazy. 
Mm. You know, don't give me this rubbish that we want to run down to the store in the middle of the night and get batteries. Like, piss off. Companies will go, oh, okay, so the latest thing is apps, so let's connect our toys to phones. And, and you just go, well, do you really need to? I'd just really like you to be able to design a vibrator that gives me an orgasm with buttons that I can find. And with so much out there, how do you support good companies? I mean, as consumers, you've just got to you've just got to vote with your feet. So you've just got to you've just got to support the brands that are doing the right thing and avoid the ones that aren't. The best thing is just just to look for brands that you know are promoting safe materials. Try and find a brand that's willing to tell you what their backstory is. They're telling you who they are. You know, they're not trying to hide anything. Somebody is out there buying these these really bad products because these companies still exist. There's a growing number of brands in this space, so it's incredibly important to be discerning. We're seeing a rise in the leveraging of millennial feminist sentiments to market subpar and unsafe products. Many of these companies even outsource their design, so they're not directly involved in the ideation of the product. As Judith mentioned, marketing within the sex toy industry is catching up, which we want to be wary of. While there are brands working incredibly hard to genuinely better the design of these tools, the industry still has many issues to resolve, from waste to labour conditions. Luckily, we're slowly starting to see the industry come under greater scrutiny from consumers, just like many other industries have. What's amazing is that people like Judith and Laura, despite all of the challenges and discrimination they've faced, simply for being in the sex toy space, have achieved so much. Companies like Laura DiCarlo have proven the concerns of investors and narrow-minded banks are unfounded. You know, a number of things have to happen in order to get where we are today. And a lot of things had to happen just for me to get the courage to found the company, which was, you know, a story and a, and a journey in and of itself that had a lot of tackling questions of self-worth, of imposter syndrome, and a whole plethora of other isms and, you know, anxiety and depression and, and just not understanding that we don't have to stay in the tiny little box that we built for ourselves. And um, that orgasm was basically just the first brick to building something that I hope to see turn into a bit of an empire. It's not my empire. It is our community's empire. This is this is a, a kingdom for every freaking person to <laughs> reside in and to raise their freak flag as high as they want <laughs> to raise it and everybody gets to have their damn flag out whenever they want, wherever they want it. Yes, we're trending. Yes, we're we're a mm. damn good investment yeah. as a company. We are we should be a part of everyone's diversified portfolio. Mm. Yes, we are gonna make some really amazing sex tech, but the things yeah. that I wanna see are these little breakthroughs in everybody's individual lives mm. and how how are we helping them to get over some of the most horrendous hurdles that they couldn't have gotten over on their own? And those are the things that are really important to me. Sex toys are incredibly powerful tools that have a pretty outstanding record for improving people's pleasure. With so much out there to explore, all you can do is simply do your best to be discerning and remember that they're an investment in yourself. 
obsolete anyway. I mean, already you can't talk to them. You don't need them to have kids with you. You don't even need them to have sex with anymore, as I've just very pleasantly discovered. Uh-oh, sounds like somebody just got their first vibrator. Not first, ultimate. And I think I'm in love. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. There's also lots more info and links to further reading in the show notes. I'm Caroline Morrow-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcher, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.